Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for this day that you have made. We ask now, God, as we turn to your word, uh, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would open our eyes and open our ears uh, to see what it is that you have, us to, have for us to see and to hear what it is that you have for us to hear. Uh, I pray, God, that in this moment, this wouldn't just be some guy speaking through a TV or a computer screen, uh, but God, I pray that it would be your words that are coming through. In this season, God, where we are all um, really fatigued with looking at screens and doing relationships and community on screens, I pray that you would um, impart in everyone who is participating in this service this morning uh, a more than just a sense of watching something on a screen, but actually a sense of unity and community with your body, even though we're scattered uh, in different places uh, all over the country. I pray that your word would go forth. I pray that you would speak clearly through me. I pray that this would not be um, like some clever or well thought through oral presentation, but that it would literally be the words of life that come from you and from your word. I pray that in this moment you would encourage us and you would convict us and that you would teach us and that you would remind us who you are and what you've done. I pray that you would, and what you're doing, not just what you've done, but what you are doing. Um, I pray all of these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, good morning. Once again, so good to be back with you. Uh, we are in uh, the middle of a series called Hope in Trouble. It is a series in which we are working through the book of Esther in the Old Testament. I want to say thank you to Jason Johnson, who preached Esther 2 last week, gave us a, a beautiful message reminding us um, of God's favor and how Esther found favor. Uh, and that relates really to grace. Um, so thank you, Jason, for that message. Uh, we're going to continue that series today, uh, Hope in Trouble. We're going to be in Esther chapter 3. And uh, as usual, I got a lot of things I want to try and say, so we're going to get right into it. So if you'll meet me in Esther chapter 3, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter, as we have been doing all the way up to this point, and we'll continue to do through this series. So Esther chapter 3. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman, and he, excuse me, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. 
So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by, the, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, the most prominent mountain in the state of Maine is Mount Katahdin. It's the crown jewel of Baxter State Park in northern Maine. It's the tallest mountain in Maine. It's the second tallest mountain in New England after Mount Washington in New Hampshire. It's also very well known because it is the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, which is a continuous trail that runs from Mount Katahdin in Maine all the way down to Georgia. Uh, A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to hike Mount Katahdin uh, with my dad and my brother, and on that hike had the opportunity to to experience the most infamous section of trail on the hike to the summit of Mount Katahdin. That section of trail is called the Knife's Edge. It is a flat, wide, and broad trail through a gentle meadow. Just kidding, it's not. It It is a section of trail right before you hit the summit of Mount Katahdin that is almost a mile long. In some places it gets as narrow as four feet and drops on some, in some cases, a sheer drop of one to 2,000 feet on either side. One of the hiking websites I was looking at this week to get those statistics uh, had a rating for the difficulty of the knife's edge and normally you'd expect something like, you know, easy, moderate, challenging, difficult. Uh, This website had for the difficulty rating, sign the will. And the thing about the knife's edge is that there are many trails that you can take to get to the summit of Mount Katahdin. But if you're coming from the east or from the north, all of those trails converge at the knife's edge. You cannot get to the top without crossing the knife's edge. And what is true at Mount Katahdin in Maine is also true in our lives. The the title of my sermon today is Here Comes Trouble. And no matter your station in life, no matter the choices you make, no matter the path you choose, no matter the direction that you are led on, one of the truisms of life is that at some point, probably more than once, you are going to have to cross the knife's edge. Trouble is a reality of our existence in this world. You may be getting ready to apply for the school, the graduate program that you're sure is right for you, but for reasons unknown, you don't get in. It might be that you have a job that is secure and you need that job and then all of a sudden one day you don't have that job anymore. It might be that a word like divorce, which you never thought would be associated with you, becomes a a potential or even a reality. 
It might be that you, you feel fine and you look fine, but the doctor says that you aren't fine. Or it could just be that you have to live through a year like 2020. If I was going to preach a sermon on 2020, I would probably call it the same thing. Here comes trouble or maybe the knife's edge. So as we turn to Esther chapter three, if there is one word that I want you to think about when you think about Esther chapter three, it is the word trouble. There is trouble all over this chapter, pretty much for everyone who's involved in the story of Esther. If you remember back two weeks ago when we started this series, Esther chapter one, we talked about the, 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 the main theme of that chapter was the big, the main word was control. It was about control and who's in control. This, this king thinks he's in control, but it sure doesn't look like he's in control. And, and last week, though there were, there were many great points that Jason drew out of that passage. One of the main ideas of, the, of Esther chapter two is this idea of favor. Here's this Jewish orphan girl who should have no business becoming the queen of a, a pagan and godless kingdom like Persia, but yet there she is being made queen of Persia. And it's because of the favor that was bestowed on her by several characters in that story. And then as we get to today's text, to Esther chapter three, the, the controlling word is trouble. And as we sit in 2020, the year of trouble, I wanna draw out three principles as it relates to this idea of trouble that we can get from Esther chapter three. Three truths about how trouble, how we can experience trouble in this life that we are going to see in Esther chapter three. The title of the series is Hope in Trouble, and it's taken us a few weeks, but today we are getting to the point in the story where we're introduced to the conflict, we're introduced to the trouble that everyone is experiencing in the story of Esther. So the first thing I want us to see as we look at Esther chapter three is this. Trouble will come when we do what's right. Trouble will come when we do what's right. As we're introduced now into the new scene of Esther, we're introduced to a new character, Haman. We're told the King Ahasuerus, I know, I know blessings on Jason last week who said he's not gonna use that name, he's gonna use Xerxes and I love it and appreciate it, but just cause I'm in the ESV and it's the, the name that, that they use, I'm gonna keep going with Ahasuerus, but just remember, same king, Ahasuerus, Xerxes. Xerxes, same king. Ahasuerus has promoted this guy Haman, uh, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, to number two in his kingdom. And he's instructed all of the people who work in his court, which includes now Mordecai, who has an official job in the, at, the, at the gate of the king. He's, he's told them that they're to honor and pay homage and bow down to Haman. But we are told in verse two that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. Now this reminds us of a lot of other biblical stories. In particular, the one that comes to mind for me is Daniel chapter three, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down and worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. But a critical difference is that what we see in chapter three here of Esther is that the king is not, not decreeing worship. He's decreeing homage. So the question is, why won't Mordecai give Haman the respect that the king has told him to give him? Uh, well, I think there's a clue in the naming of both in the naming of Haman. So we know that Mordecai is a Jew. That's been established already. And we're reminded of that in verse four. When Haman is introduced, he's named the Agagite. When the Israelites, uh, the original audience for this story, I think would have known in that moment when they heard Haman the Agagite, why there was going to be tension between him and Mordecai. And this is why. When the Israelites were rescued by God out of slavery in Egypt, and they were taken into the wilderness and began wandering in the wilderness, the first nation that attacked them in the wilderness was a nation called, was a people group, a nomadic people group called the Amalekites. 
You'll remember that fight. It's when Moses, is, his hands are held up by Aaron and Hur, and when his hands are up, Joshua and the, the men of Israel win the battle, but when his hands droop, they're losing the battle, and ultimately, they win the battle. And for generations, there is enmity and war between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And when we get to King Saul, the first king of Israel, he fights with the Amalekites as well. And at that time in history, the king of the Amalekites is named Agag. And so scholars aren't sure that Haman was directly descended from Agag, but by virtue of his name being the Agagite, they believe he is an Amalekite. He has, a pre, an, he has an anti-Semitic predisposition based on his people group, whereby the original audience of this story would have heard Mordecai a Jew, Haman the Agagite, yep, there's going to be conflict between them. So whether, whether Mordecai didn't bow down to him for moral reasons or political reasons or religious reasons. He's a Jew and they were well known for believing there was one monotheistic God and they, no one else was worthy of worship. Whatever the reason that Mordecai doesn't bow down, what we can say with a lot of confidence is that he did what he thought was right. Mordecai didn't bow down to Haman because he thought it was the right thing to do. And as we see, as we move a few verses forward, that decision to do what he thought was right caused all kinds of trouble for him. Mordecai, verse 5, is filled with fury. Think about the king in chapter 1 when Vashti refuses to come. He's enraged. Here we are again, chapter 3. Mordecai won't bow to Haman, and Haman is filled with fury. And so he decides in verse 6 that he is going to destroy not just Mordecai, but his entire people group. The, The slight to his pride in this moment is so significant that he decides genocide is the only option to wipe out an entire people group because Mordecai would not bow to him in the way that he wanted him to. Uh, I moved to California two years ago from across the country, from Massachusetts, and um, I took my sweet time going to the DMV. Now, the thing about California is that they want you to get your cars registered in a very, very short amount of time. I think it's like four hours that they want you, by the time you bring your vehicle into California, it needs to be registered with the DMV. That's not true, but that's what it feels like. It's like maybe, it is short, it's like a week or two weeks or something like that. Uh, But when you move across the country, you got a thousand things to do, and I had heard all the horror stories about the California DMV, so I took my sweet time going to the DMV. And uh, it was like two months before I went to register uh, our, our car. And the, the thing about it, the way that, the, that it works at the DMV is it's an honor system. Uh, there's a fine you have to pay if you don't register your car within the window that they prescribe. But the way they know whether you are supposed to get that fine is they give you a form to fill out and you're supposed to write in the date that you brought your car into California. So I had a moral dilemma right there in the middle of the Los Gatos DMV two months after I moved to California. And though everything in me wanted to say that I just brought my car in a couple days ago, I knew because of my faith and what I, my worldview is that I needed to do what's right and be, be honest. And, and honest, to, to be frank with you, I thought in that moment, as I was just being so morally taking the high road and being honest, that who, whatever clerk I got assigned to was going to be so impressed with my honesty that they were going to waive the fine. I kind of expected that would be the case. Uh, when I had to pay an extra $200 on my registration fee, I found out that that grace was not gonna be forthcoming uh, at the DMV that day. I did what I thought was right, and I caught a lot of trouble for it. Now, uh, before you think I'm holding myself up as some great moral example, I'm not. I'm the knucklehead who took two months to actually go to the DMV and get my car registered. But what, what what happens in that DMV is what happens to us 
in life all the time. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Jesus. And anyone who tells you that choosing the way of Jesus is the way to uh, an easy life that's trouble and care, trouble-free and carefree is not telling you what is found in the pages of this book. Now, I know for many of us, as we hear me talking about that, those of us who have been Christians for a while, we're like, I know that, Pastor Gary. Like, that's not anything new. That's not some great insight that you're giving us that there's a cost to following Jesus. Like, take up your cross and follow me. There's going to be hardships. Yeah, I know all that stuff. But here's the thing. I don't think we can be reminded of it enough. And here's why. Because even though we know it in our heads, when we do something that we think is right and then we catch trouble for it, for most of us, and I myself included, our response in that moment is not, oh, of course. Jesus promised that this would happen. This is simply the cost of discipleship. I chose to do something that was right, and I'm going to get in trouble sometimes when I do that. That's not how we respond. Most times when we get trouble for doing something that we thought was right, our response is like, why? Why me? Why is God doing this to me? But we just need to be reminded, and I think Esther chapter 3, the opening verses of this chapter are doing it for us, that sometimes when we choose to do what we believe is right, what we think God has told us is right, we are going to catch trouble for that. So when, when you're passed over for a promotion, because most days you leave the office at 6 to go have dinner with your spouse and kids, and everyone else stays till 8 or 9, but you have just chosen that your, fi- that your family is more of a priority than your career, we just need to know in that moment that sometimes is going to be the cost of doing what you think is right. When you spend Friday night at home, alone because you're not willing to go where your friends are going or to do the things that your friends are doing. We just need to be reminded that sometimes there is a cost to doing what is right. When you, when your child is telling you to your face in no uncertain terms how they feel about you because you wouldn't let them go to the party or you wouldn't let them go on that overnight trip, we just need to be reminded that sometimes when we do what we think is right, we're going to get in trouble for it. Sometimes Trouble will come when we do what's right. And on that super encouraging note, let's now move to point number two, which is maybe a little bit more encouraging. So sometimes trouble will come when we do what's right. Second thing I want us to see in this this chapter is that trouble will come when we do what's wrong. Trouble will come when we do what's wrong. As 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 the plot continues to thicken in Esther chapter three, Haman is enraged and he devises a plan whereby which he wants to, um, literally eradicate the the Jewish people all over the kingdom of Persia. And so he goes to King Ahasuerus. And this king, who we already have been um, warned in the first chapter, and partly the second chapter too, is not a great decision maker, is not really good at listening to the advice of the people around him. Haman comes to him and he tells him a little bit of truth. He tells him some half-truths. And he tells him some lies. And he basically gets the king to hand over his power, his authority to Haman, so that Haman can do whatever he wants. Haman says in verse 9, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. That's the Jewish people. And in verse 11, the king says to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. But critically, in between there, in verse 10, it tells us that the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Haman wants to eradicate the Jews, but Ahasuerus never asks a single question about what the people group is that he wants to do this to or why he actually wants to do it. And remember the irony all over this book. Here here it is in this chapter. 
Haman wants to eradicate the people group of which his queen is one. But the king doesn't have the foresight or the insight or the ability to actually dig in and find out what's going on. He just listens to the voice of Haman and turns over his responsibility for the kingdom and his people to someone to whom that responsibility should never have been turned over. He does something really wrong. The king abdicates his responsibility as a king. He's to lead these people. He's to protect them. If I can go a little biblical, since we're in the Bible, he's to shepherd them. And he completely abdicates his responsibility to his subjects, doesn't ask any questions, doesn't seek any truth, hands his signet ring over to, Ham to Haman, with Haman coming to him with this just heinous, horrible, racist plot that, is, that originated from Satan in the pit of hell, and the king doesn't ask any questions and says, go ahead, uh, go ahead, do what you want. When I, uh, sometimes, trouble will come. And, and the upshot of that is, it causes trouble for everyone. Verse 15, the king and Haman sit down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. In other words, it could be chaos. Uh, the king completely abdicates, he listens to the voice of Haman, completely abdicates his responsibility, and his subjects, all the people who are counting on him, are thrown into chaos. When I was growing up, um, I loved to go to my grandparents' house, primarily because I loved my grandparents, uh, loved my grandparents, but secondarily because they had cable, and we did not have cable TV in my home. We had pretty, uh, no cable fairly tight restrictions on how much TV we were allowed to watch. But when I went to grandma and granddad's, they both had cable and it was vacation. And so kind of the TV rules were thrown out the window. So it was a, it was a cartoon binge fest when I went to my grandparents' house. And I'd watch all the good ones, like G.I. Joe and Transformers. And when those ended, it's not like I would turn off the TV and then go do something physical or get some exercise or anything. It's like it was cable TV. So I just kept flipping through the channels until I found some more cartoons. And usually after the good ones ended, it was the older ones, the not so good ones like Tom and Jerry and uh, the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. But hey, I, that, that's good enough for me. I'll run with that. And, and for those of you who remember those older cartoons, you will remember that there's a scene that frequently would come up in those cartoons when a character in one of those cartoons was faced with a moral dilemma. Very often, something like, should I drop this anvil or should I light this bomb? Very often in that moment, two little characters would appear on the shoulders of that, that character who has the moral decision to make. One would be dressed like an angel and one would be dressed like a demon. And they would both start speaking into that character's ears, saying, this is why you should do what's right and this is why you should do what's wrong. And as funny as that is, there's actually some good theology in that because the same thing happens to you and I every day. We have multiple voices speaking into our head and heart every day. And my question today for us, as we think about the King Ahasuerus and the voice that he listened to, is what voice are you listening to? What voice are we listening to? We've got one voice, the Spirit of God, in one ear, calling us to goodness and righteousness and good deeds and works of love. And we've got another voice in another ear coming through many channels, but originating always from Satan himself, drawing us to, to unrighteousness, to badness, to, to unkind things and to bad deeds. And so my question today is whose voice 
are you listening to? When we hear that voice of the devil coming through whatever channel it's coming to us through, enticing us, tempting us to to, um, abdicate our responsibility and do something we know we shouldn't do, are we seeking truth? Are we asking questions? Are we trying to figure out, is this the right decision for me? Are we just saying, hey, here's my signet ring. Go ahead, do whatever it is that you want with it. Whose voice are we listening to? I don't care what your station is in life. If you are a student or a teacher or an employee or a boss or a child or a parent or whatever else, whatever other place you find yourself in in life, there are people who are counting on you. We are more like this king than we want to admit. There are people who are counting on us and our decisions matter. Our actions matter because they affect not only us, but the people who are around us. And so we have to discern which voice we are listening to and what decisions we are making because when we make the wrong decision, it can bring trouble. And very often, as we see in this passage, it is not just trouble for ourselves, but it is trouble for those around us, for those who are counting on us, for those who need us. So sometimes trouble comes when we do what's right, and sometimes trouble comes when we do what's wrong. And then the last thing that I want us to see in this text, in Esther chapter 3, is that sometimes trouble will come when we don't do anything. Sometimes trouble will come when we don't do anything. Up to this point, we have kind of covered most of the main players in Esther chapter 3. But there is one, there's one character, or I should say characters, that we haven't really talked about, and that is the Jewish people. Can you imagine the situation on that day that the edict went out from the king? Look with me back at verses 12 and 13. It says, The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And then skip ahead to to verse 13. It says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, like as if it wasn't clear enough, all right, three times, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So this edict went out in the first month of the year, and that was to happen on the 12th month of the year. So, so here are all the Jewish people all over the kingdom of Persia who have nothing to do with Mordecai or Haman or anything that's going on in the king's palace. They are just going about their daily lives doing their daily business, trying their best to be good citizens and good neighbors. And here here it is, 13th day of the first month. They're heading out to the store to get some food for dinner. They're sitting on the porch with their family. They're playing some pickup hoops in the park with some friends. And here, here comes some courier running through town yelling, hey, everyone, hey, everyone, the king has, has sent out an edict. It's, it's unrevocable. We're supposed to kill all the Jews and take all of their stuff 11 months from now. Can you imagine the despair? As one scholar said, talking about this chapter, in this moment in the book of Esther, because of the irrevocable nature of the edict of the king of Persia, the situation for the Jews is utterly hopeless. They haven't done anything. They are sitting there saying, what did we do to deserve this? And the next thing you know, there's an edict out that they are going to be slaughtered on one day by everyone else in the kingdom. Sometimes we get into trouble when we don't do anything at all. Uh, Back in February, uh, or late February, early March, when my wife Beth and I were in Israel uh, 10 years ago. It feels like 10 years ago. It was like six months ago. Um, One day, we were walking with our group through the old city of Jerusalem, which is like 
you know, narrow alleys and street vendors everywhere and thousands of tourists, but it's, it's a place where you really get the sense of like, this is probably kind of what it was like when Jesus was here. It's, it's, a, it's very cool. But we're walking through there, literally thousands of people packed in these alleys and vendors and, um, and, a, and a bird that we didn't see, a bird flies overhead. And I think I'm talking about sometimes things, bad things happen when we don't do anything. Uh, hopefully you can see where this is going. Uh, that bird, as it was flying overhead, relieved itself. And, um, and my poor wife, Beth, uh, was hit by the deposit. And it was not a small deposit. And, and like, like the Jews in this story, in that moment, she was kind of like, what did I do to deserve this? All over her new jacket and, and her pants. And I did what any good husband would do. I, as quickly as could, got my phone out so I could get a few pictures of it before it got cleaned up. Um, that's kind of a, like a funny, hopefully, that was kind of a funny uh, illustration to make the point. But, but that's what happens to us a lot in life, and we need to be reminded of that. Uh, the, the, the function, the byproduct of living in a world where, where for reasons we cannot explain, God has allowed Satan to have dominion is the fact that we live in a world that is still broken by sin. And so sometimes we are just going about our daily business, minding our own business, and we get dumped on. Sometimes we don't do anything at all, and yet trouble still finds us. Sometimes we wake up and the car, the battery in our car is dead and it won't start. Sometimes we're driving through our neighborhood and we're following the speed limit and our car registration is up to date and we get pulled over simply because of the color of our skin. That has not happened to me, but, but that has happened to many of our brothers and sisters here at Abundant Life. Sometimes we're just minding our own business, living our life, and we get diagnosed with cancer or a child gets sick or we lose our job, or we have to go through a global pandemic, the likes of which the world has never seen. Sometimes, because of the brokenness of sin in our world, we have to go through trouble, even though we haven't done anything. But what I want to remind us is kind of what I reminded us earlier, and that is this. Every time we go through trouble, that does not mean that God is angry with us, that he's disappointed with us, or that he's, that he's punishing us. That is not the way God works. Sometimes we just go through trouble. Sometimes we just have to walk the knife's edge because that is what life on this planet infected with sin looks like. Remember the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus' disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And do you remember Jesus' answer? He says, neither. This is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes. We find trouble for not doing, not doing the right thing, for not doing the wrong thing. Sometimes we have to walk through trouble for doing nothing at all. Now, as, as, I, as I get ready to wrap this up, for all of you who are sitting there right now and are like, Pastor Gary, thank you for this incredibly encouraging and uplifting message in the midst of this really difficult season. I want you to know I am just trying to preach the text. This is what, this is what I saw in this chapter. The, the, the nature of life is that all of us at some point are going to have to walk the knife's edge, probably more than once. And if I can just be really honest with you in this moment, and I, I always try to be, I know I say that probably more than I should in, in my messages. Um, for most of this year, for most of this pandemic, 
I have tried my best. You've heard me say it a bunch in my sermons and messages. I've tried my best to have an attitude of, let's make the most of it. Let's learn what God is teaching us. Let's lean into this. God's working. Uh, it, let's, let, let's endure through this. But I'll tell you, this week, I kind of hit my breaking point and, and I kind of lost that. I was just like, I'm done. I'm ready to be done with this. this is, it's, it's time for this to be over. It's like Jason talked about in his sermon last week. Sometimes God shows up when trouble is present and says, trouble, it's time for you to leave. And this week I was like, God, I'm ready for that. It, I'm, I'm ready for you to tell, tell trouble, the trouble of 2020 to leave. So I want you to know I am preaching to myself this morning as much as anybody. The challenge of preaching this book of Esther is this. Preaching it the way that we're doing it, one chapter at a time, means we only get one scene at a time. We only get one snippet at a time. We only get one part of the story at a time. We don't get to see the whole picture in one shot until we get to the end. And it's, it's a little bit like if, if, if I preached a parable of Jesus verse by verse, did one verse this week, did another verse the next week, it would be really hard because those verses in and of themselves separated from the whole story. You need to know the end to understand the big picture and what, what the punchline is. And the same is true with the book of Esther. We need to see the end. We need to know the punchline to find the hope that's in it. And so part of me this week was like, I just want to fast forward through the whole book and preach it all this, this, this Sunday because we need the hope that is found in the book of Esther. But I want us to know that the problem, the challenge of the book of Esther is the same challenge that we have in our own lives. Because just like the way we're preaching Esther right now, chapter by chapter, we live our lives chapter by chapter. We only see it a scene at a time. We only see a snippet at a time. We don't know what the end is going to look like. And if we could enter into the story of Esther in chapter three, knowing what happens through the rest of the book, and we could meet the Jews who have just received this edict from the king saying, you're going to be slaughtered in 11 months. We could say to them in that moment, there is reason for hope in the midst of your trouble because in the end, it's going to turn out. Deliverance is coming. You can be hopeful. It's not hopeless in the moment because we know how the story turns out. And I believe abundant life that God is saying the same thing to you and me this morning. He is saying, you are only getting snippets of your life. You are only getting it chapter by chapter, but I know the whole story. I know the end. I know how it's going to work out. And I, I promise you deliverance is coming. Just like I was working behind the scenes in Esther chapter 3, moving the pieces into place, setting up the circumstances and the situations that would ultimately lead to deliverance for my people. I am doing the same in 2020. I am moving the pieces. I am setting up the circumstances and the situations such that you will see deliverance coming. You may not see it now, but I know the end of the story. So hang tough because there is reason for hope in the midst of your trouble. I don't know what your trouble is today. I don't know what your difficulty is today. I know a lot of us feel like we are walking the knife's edge right now in 2020. But the reason I can sit here and say this with so much confidence, with so much, um, so much hope, is because we have hindsight on the darkest day of the history of the world. Think back to that day 2,000 years ago when, when Jesus' followers at Calvary saw the one who was their leader, the one who they thought was their savior, the one who they thought was their king, being nailed to a cross and lifted high above them. Uh, talk about walking on the knife's edge. And as he, his breath drew short, can you not imagine his followers sitting there thinking, here comes trouble. But what they didn't know in that moment was that God was in it and he was working behind the scenes and he had a plan and he was putting the purposes and the situations and the circumstances into place such that three days later, 
He was raised from the dead and what looked like total defeat turned into total victory over Satan and sin and death. There is hope. There is reason for hope in the midst of your trouble. The God who has done it before, will he not do it again? The story is not finished, abundant life. Your story is not finished, abundant life. And so we can find hope, hope in the midst of trouble. Amen. God, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for this story of, of Esther and, and Mordecai and your people scattered all over the Persian Empire 2,500 years ago and the way that it reminds us today that you are always at work even when things look bleak, even when they look utterly hopeless. You are always at work behind the scenes setting things up for the deliverance of your people. And we, we love you and we praise you for that. And we thank you for the hope that is found in you. May we feel it in this moment. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're now going to um, observe the second communion of the month, uh, or the third, if you count the drive-in communion from last week. Um, so uh, if you have the elements, you can get those ready. Let's just be quiet for a moment uh, as we prepare our hearts to take communion. And let me just remind us, for anyone who's watching this, if you would not say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I would invite you not to partake in communion with us as the Bible is clear that this is for those who have trusted their lives uh, to Jesus Christ. But if that's you, if you have not done that and you would love to, this is, there is no better moment than now to do that. We would love to help you with that. Um, you can reach out to us at info at ALCF.net. We would love to talk to you about what it means to become a Christian and what it looks like. Likewise, if you need prayer for any reason, you can reach out to us at prayer at ALCF.net. But we'll, we'll be quiet just for a moment and then I'll lead us in the taking of the elements for communion. If you'll take the bread. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. If you'll take the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved, uh, you are prayed for, and you're sent. <laughs>